Section 12 of What is Property? This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. What is Property? An Inquiry into the Principle of Right and of Government by Pierre-Joseph Proudhon. Translated by Benjamin R. Tucker. Chapter 3, Part 4. Labor as the Efficient Course of the Domain of Property. That inequality of powers is the necessary condition of equality of fortunes. It is objected, and this objection constitutes the second part of the St. Simonian and the third part of the Fourieristic maxim that all kinds of labor cannot be executed with equal ease some require great superiority of skill and intelligence and on this superiority is based the price the artist the savant the poet the statesman are esteemed only because of their excellence and this excellence destroys all similitude between them and other men in the presence of these heights of science and genius the law of equality disappears now if equality is not absolute there is no equality from the poet we descend to the novelist from the sculptor to the stonecutter from the architect to the mason and from the chemist to the cook etc capacities are classified and subdivided into orders genera and species the extremes of talent are connected by intermediate talents humanity is a vast hierarchy in which the individual estimates himself by comparison and fixes his price by the value placed upon his product by the public the objection always has seemed a formidable one it is the stumbling block of the economists as well as of the defenders of equality it has led the former into egregious blunders and has caused the latter to utter incredible platitudes gracchus babeuf wished all superiority to be stringently repressed and even persecuted as a social calamity to establish his communistic edifice he lowered all citizens to the stature of the smallest ignorant eclectics have been known to object to the inequality of knowledge and I should not be surprised if someone should yet rebel against the inequality of virtue. Aristotle was banished. Socrates drank the hemlock. Epaminondas was called to account for having proved superior in intelligence and virtue to some dissolute and foolish demagogues. Such follies will be reenacted so long as the inequality of fortunes justifies a populace blinded and oppressed by the wealthy in fearing the elevation of new tyrants to power nothing seems more unnatural than that which we examine too closely and often nothing seems less like the truth than the truth itself on the other hand according to j j rousseau it takes a great deal of philosophy to enable us to observe once what we see every day and according to d'alembert the ordinary truths of life make but little impression on men unless their attention is especially called to them the father of the school of economists say from whom i borrow these two quotations might have profited by them but he who laughs at the blind should wear spectacles 
and he who notices him is near-sighted strange that which has frightened so many minds is not after all an objection to equality it is the very condition on which equality exists natural inequality the condition of equality of fortunes what a paradox i repeat my assertion that no one may think i have blundered inequality of powers is the sine qua non of equality of fortunes there are two things to be considered in society functions and relations one functions every laborer is supposed to be capable of performing the task assigned to him or to use a common expression every workman must know his trade the workman equal to his work there is an equation between functionary and function in society functions are not alike there must be then different capacities further certain functions demand greater intelligence and powers and there are people of superior mind and talent for the performance of work necessarily involves a workman from the need springs the idea and the idea makes the producer we only know what our senses long for and our intelligence demands we have no keen desire for things of which we cannot conceive and the greater our powers of conception the greater our capabilities of production thus functions arriving from needs needs from desires and desires from spontaneous perception and imagination the same intelligence which imagines can also produce consequently no labor is superior to the laborer in a word if the function calls out the functionary it is because the functionary exists before the function let us admire nature's economy with regard to these various needs which she has given us and which the isolated man cannot satisfy unaided nature has granted to the race a power refused to the individual she gives rise to the principle of the division of labor a principle founded on the speciality of vocations the satisfaction of some needs demands of man continual creation while others can by the labor of a single individual be satisfied for millions of men through thousands of centuries for example the need of clothing and food requires perpetual reproduction while a knowledge of the system of the universe may be acquired for ever by two or three highly gifted men the perpetual current of rivers supports our commerce and runs our machinery but the sun alone in the midst of space gives light to the trade world nature who might create platos and virgils newtons and cuviers as she creates husbandmen and shepherds does not see fit to do so choosing rather to proportion the rarity of genius to the duration of its products and to balance the number of capacities by the competency of each one of them i do not inquire here whether the distance which separates one man from another in point of talent and intelligence arises from the deplorable condition of civilization nor whether that which is now called the inequality of powers would be in an ideal society anything more than a diversity of powers i take the worst view of the matter and that i may not be accused of tergiversation and evasion of difficulties 
I acknowledge all the inequalities that any one can desire. Footnote. I cannot conceive how any one dares to justify the inequality of conditions by pointing to the base inclinations and propensities of certain men. Whence comes this shameful degradation of heart and mind to which so many fall victims, if not from the misery and abjection into which property plunges them? End of footnote. Certain philosophers, in love with the levelling idea, maintain that all minds are equal, and that all differences are the result of education. I am no believer, I confess, in this doctrine, which, even if it were true, would lead to a result directly opposite to that desired. For, if capacities are equal, whatever be the degree of their power, as no one can be coerced, there are functions deemed coarse, low, and degrading, which deserve higher pay, a result no less repugnant to equality than to the principle, to each capacity according to its results. Give me, on the contrary, a society in which every kind of talent bears a proper numerical relation to the needs of the society, and which demands from each producer only that which his special function requires him to produce, and, without impairing in the least the hierarchy of functions, I will deduce the equality of fortunes. This is my second point. 2. Relations. In considering the element of labour, I have shown that in the same class of productive services, the capacity to perform a social task being possessed by all, no inequality of reward can be based upon an inequality of individual powers. However, it is but fair to say that certain capacities seem quite incapable of certain services, so that, if human industry were entirely confined to one class of products, numerous incapacities would arise, and consequently the greatest social inequality. But everybody sees, without any hint from me, that the variety of industries avoids these difficulties. So clear is this, that I shall not stop to discuss it. We have only to prove, then, that functions are equal to each other, just as labourers who perform the same function are equal to each other. Property makes man a eunuch, and then reproaches him for being nothing but dry wood, a decaying tree. Are you astonished that I refuse to genius, to knowledge, to courage, in a word, to all the excellencies admired by the world, the homage of dignities, the distinctions of power and wealth? It is not I who refuse it, it is economy. It is justice, it is liberty. Liberty! For the first time in this discussion, I appeal to her. Let her rise in her own defence and achieve her victory. Every transaction ending in an exchange of products or services may be designed as a commercial operation. Whoever says commerce says exchange of equal values, for if the values are not equal and the injured party perceives it, he will not consent to the exchange, and there will be no commerce. Commerce exists only among free men. Transactions may be effected between other people by violence or fraud, but there is no commerce. A free man is one who enjoys the use of his reason and his faculties, who is neither blinded by passion, nor hindered or driven by oppression, nor deceived by erroneous opinions. 
so in every exchange there is a moral obligation that neither of the contradicting parties shall gain at the expense of the other that is that to be legitimate and true commerce must be exempt from all inequality this is the first condition of commerce its second condition is that it be voluntary that is that the parties act freely and openly i define then commerce or exchange as an act of society the negro who sells his wife for a knife his children for some bits of glass and finally himself for a bottle of brandy is not free the dealer in human flesh with whom he negotiates is not his associate he is his enemy the civilized laborer who bakes a loaf that he may eat a slice of bread who builds a palace that he may sleep in a stable who weaves rich fabrics that he may dress in rags who produces everything that he may dispense with everything is not free his employer not becoming his associate in the exchange of salaries or services which takes place between them is his enemy the soldier who serves his country through fear instead of through love is not free his comrades and his officers the ministers or organs of military justice are all his enemies the peasant who hires land the manufacturer who borrows capital the taxpayer who pays tolls duties patent and license fees personal and property taxes etc and the deputy who votes for them all act neither intelligently nor freely their enemies are the proprietors the capitalists the government give men liberty enlighten their minds that they may know the meaning of their contracts and you will see the most perfect equality in exchanges without regard to superiority of talent and knowledge and you will admit that in commercial affairs that is in the sphere of society the word superiority is void of sense let homer sing his verse i listen to this sublime genius in comparison with whom i a simple herdsman a humble farmer am as nothing what indeed if product is to be compared with product are my cheeses and my beans in the presence of this iliad but if homer wishes to take from me all that i possess and make me his slave in return for his inimitable poem i will give up the pleasure of his lays and dismiss him i can do without his iliad and wait if necessary for the aeneid homer cannot live twenty-four hours without my products let him accept then the little that i have to offer and when his muse may instruct encourage and console him what do you say that such should be the condition of one who sings of gods and men arms with the humiliation and suffering which they bring to them what barbarous generosity do not get excited i beg of you property makes of a poet either a croesus or a beggar only equality knows how to honor and praise him what is his duty to regulate the right of the singer and the duty of the listener to notice this point which is a very important one to the solution of the question both are free and one to sell the other to buy henceforth their respective pretensions go for nothing and the estimate whether fair or unfair that they place 
the one upon his verse the other upon his liberality can have no influence upon the conditions of the contract we must no longer in making our bargains weigh talent we must consider products only in order that the bard of achilles may get his due reward he must first make himself wanted that done the exchange of his verse for a fee of any kind being a free act must be at the same time a just act that is the poet's fee must be equal to his product now what is the value of this product let us suppose in the first place that his iliad this chef d'oeuvre that is to be equitably rewarded is really above price that we do not know how to appraise it etc if the public who are free to purchase it refuse to do so it is clear that the poem being unexchangeable its intrinsic value will not be diminished but that its exchangeable value or its productive utility will be reduced to zero will be nothing at all then we must seek the amount of wages to be paid between infinity on the one hand and nothing on the other at an equal distance from each other since all rights and liberties are entitled to equal respect in other words it is not the intrinsic value but the relative value of the thing sold that needs to be fixed the question grows simpler what is this relative value to what reward does a poem like the iliad entitle its author the first business of political economy after fixing its definitions was the solution of this problem now not only has it not been solved but it has been declared insoluble according to the economists the relative or exchangeable value of things cannot be absolutely determined it necessarily varies the value of a thing says say is a positive quantity but only for a given moment it is its nature to perpetually vary to change from one point to another nothing can fix it absolutely because it is based on needs and means of production which vary with every moment these variations complicate economical phenomena and often render them very difficult of observation and solution i know no remedy for this it is not in our power to change the nature of things elsewhere say says and repeats that value being based on utility and utility depending entirely on our needs whims customs etc value is as variable as opinion now political economy being the science of values of their production distribution exchange and consumption if exchangeable value cannot be absolutely determined how is political economy possible and how can it be a science how can two economists look at each other in the face without laughing how dare they insult metaphysicians and psychologists what that fool of a descartes imagined that philosophy needed an immovable base an aliquid inconcusum on which the edifice of science might be built and he was simple enough to search for it and the hermes of economy trismegistus say devoting half a volume to the amplification of that solemn text political economy is a science has the courage to affirm immediately afterwards that this science cannot determine its object which is equivalent to saying that it is without a principle or foundation he does not know then this the illustrious say the nature of a science or rather 
he knows nothing of the subject which he discusses say's example has borne its fruits political economy as it exists at present resembles ontology discussing effects and causes it knows nothing explains nothing decides nothing the ideas honored with the name of economic laws are nothing more than a few trifling generalities to which the economists thought to give an appearance of depth by clothing them in high-sounding words as for the attempts that have been made by the economists to solve social problems all that can be said of them is that if a glimmer of sense occasionally appears in their lucubrations they immediately fall back into absurdity for twenty-five years political economy like a heavy fog was weighed upon france checking the efforts of the mind and seeking limits to liberty has every creation of industry a venal absolute unchangeable and consequently legitimate and true value yes can every product of man be exchanged for some other product of man yes again and how many nails is a pair of shoes worth if we can solve this appalling problem we shall have the key of the social system for which humanity has been searching for six thousand years in the presence of this problem the economist recoils confused the peasant who can neither read nor write replies without hesitation as many as can be made in the same time and with the same expense the absolute value of a thing then is its cost in time and expense how much is a diamond worth which costs only the labor of picking it up nothing it is not a product of man how much will it be worth when cut and mounted the time and expense which it has cost the laborer why then is it sold at so high a price because men are not free society must regulate the exchange and distribution of the rarest things as it does that of the most common ones in such a way that each may share in the enjoyment of them what then is the value which is based upon opinion delusion injustice and robbery by this rule it is easy to reconcile everybody if the mean term which we are searching for between an infinite value and no value at all is expressed in the case of every product by the amount of time and expense which the product cost a poem which has cost its author thirty years of labor and an outlay of ten thousand francs in journeys books etc must be paid for by the ordinary wages received by a laborer during thirty years plus ten thousand francs indemnity for expense incurred suppose the whole amount to be fifty thousand francs if the society which gets the benefit of the production include a million of men my share of the debt is five centimes that gives rise to a few observations one the same product at different times and in different places may cost more or less of time and outlay in this view it is true that value is a variable quantity but this variation is not that of the economists who place in their list of the causes of the variation of values not only the means of production but taste caprice fashion and opinion in short the true value of a thing is invariable in its algebraic expression although it may vary in its monetary expression two 
the price of every product in demand should be its cost in time and outlay neither more nor less every product not in demand is a loss to the producer a commercial non-value three the ignorance of the principle of evaluation and the difficulty under any circumstances of applying it is the source of commercial fraud and one of the most potent causes of the inequality of fortunes four to reward certain industries and pay for certain products a society is needed which corresponds in size with the rarity of talents the costliness of the products and the variety of the arts and sciences if for example a society of fifty farmers can support a schoolmaster it requires one hundred for a shoemaker one hundred and fifty for a blacksmith two hundred for a tailor etc if the number of farmers rises to a thousand ten thousand one hundred thousand etc as fast as their numbers increase that of the functionaries which are earliest required must increase in the same proportion so that the highest functions become possible only in the most powerful societies footnote how many citizens are needed to support a professor of philosophy thirty-five millions how many for an economist two billions and for a literary man who is neither a savant nor an artist nor a philosopher nor an economist and who writes newspaper novels none End of footnote. that is the peculiar feature of capacities the character of genius the seal of its glory cannot arise and develop itself except in the bosom of a great nation but this physiological condition necessary to the existence of genius adds nothing to its social rights far from that the delay in its appearance proves that in economical and civil affairs the loftiest intelligence must submit to the equality of possessions an equality which is anterior to it and of which it constitutes the crown this is severe on our pride but it is an inexorable truth and here psychology comes to the aid of social economy giving us to understand that talent and material recompense have no common measure that in this respect the condition of all producers is equal consequently that all comparison between them and all distinction in fortunes is impossible in fact every work coming from the hands of man compared with the raw material of which it is composed is beyond price in this respect the distance is as great between a pair of wooden shoes and the trunk of a walnut tree as between a statue by scopas and a block of marble the genius of the simplest mechanic exerts as much influence over the materials which he uses as does the mind of a newton over the inert spheres whose distances volumes and revolutions he calculates you ask for talent and genius a corresponding degree of honor and reward fix for me the value of a woodcutter's talent and i will fix that of homer if anything can reward intelligence it is intelligence itself that is what happens when various classes of producers pay to each other a reciprocal tribute of admiration and praise but if they contemplate an exchange of products with a view to satisfying mutual needs this exchange must be effected in accordance with a system of economy which is indifferent to considerations of talent and genius 
and whose laws are deduced not from vague and meaningless admiration but from a just balance between debit and credit in short from commercial accounts now that no one may imagine that the liberty of buying and selling is the sole basis of the equality of wages and that society's sole protection against superiority of talent lies in a certain force of inertia which has nothing in common with right i shall proceed to explain why all capacities are entitled to the same reward and why a corresponding difference in wages would be an injustice i shall prove that the obligation to stoop to the social level is inherent in talent and on this very superiority of genius i will found the equality of fortunes i have just given the negative argument in favour of rewarding all capacities alike i will now give the direct and positive argument listen first to the economist it is always pleasant to see how he reasons and how he understands justice without him moreover without his amusing blunders and his wonderful arguments we should learn nothing equality so odious to the economist owes everything to political economy when the parents of a physician the text says a lawyer which is not so good an example have expended on his education forty thousand francs this sum may be regarded as so much capital invested in his head it is therefore permissible to consider it as yielding an annual income of four thousand francs if the physician earns thirty thousand there remains an income of twenty six thousand francs due to the personal talents given him by nature this natural capital then if we assume ten per cent as the rate of interest amounts to two hundred and sixty thousand francs and the capital given him by his parents in defraying the expenses of his education to forty thousand francs the union of these two kinds of capital constitutes his fortune say complete course etc say divides the fortune of the physician into two parts one is composed of the capital which went to pay for his education the other represents his personal talents the division is just it is in conformity with the nature of things it is universally admitted it serves as the major premise of that grand argument which establishes the inequality of capacities i accept this premise without gratification let us look at the consequences one say credits the physician with forty thousand francs the cost of his education this amount should be entered upon the debit side of the account for although this expense was incurred for him it was not incurred by him then instead of appropriating these forty thousand francs the physician should add them to the price of his product and repay them to those who are entitled to them notice further that say speaks of income instead of reimbursement reasoning on the false principle of the productivity of capital the expense of educating a talent is a debt contracted by this talent from the very fact of its existence it becomes a debtor to an amount equal to the cost of its production this is so true and simple that if the education of some one child in a family has cost double or triple that of his brothers the latter are entitled to a proportional amount of the property previous to its division there is no difficulty about this in the case of guardianship where the estate is administered in the name of the minors two 
that which i have just said of the obligation incurred by talent of repaying the cost of its education does not embarrass the economist the man of talent he says inheriting from his family inherits among other things a claim to the forty thousand francs which his education costs and he becomes in consequence its proprietor but this is to abandon the right of talent and to fall back upon the right of occupancy which again calls up all the questions asked in chapter two what is the right of occupancy what is inheritance is the right of succession a right of accumulation or only a right of choice how did the physician's father get his fortune was he a proprietor or only a usufructuary if he was rich let him account for his wealth if he was poor how could he incur so large an expense if he received aid what right had he to use that aid to the disadvantage of his benefactors etc three there remains an income of twenty six thousand francs due to the personal talents given him by nature say as quoted above reasoning from this premise say concludes that our physician's talent is equivalent to a capital of two hundred and sixty thousand francs this skilful calculator mistakes a consequence for a principle the talent must not be measured by the gain but rather the gain by the talent for it may happen that notwithstanding his merit the physician in question will gain nothing at all in which case will it be necessary to conclude that his talent or fortune is equivalent to zero to such a result however would say's reasoning lead a result which is clearly absurd now it is impossible to place a money value on any talent whatsoever since talent and money have no common measure on what plausible ground can it be maintained that a physician should be paid two three or a hundred times as much as a peasant an unavoidable difficulty which has never been solved save by avarice necessity and oppression is it not thus that the right of talent should be determined but how is it to be determined i say first that the physician must be treated with as much favor as any other producer that he must not be placed below the level of others this i will not stop to prove but i add that neither must he be lifted above that level because his talent is collective property for which he did not pay and for which he is ever in debt just as the creation of every instrument of production is the result of collective force so also are a man's talent and knowledge the product of universal intelligence and of general knowledge slowly accumulated by a number of masters and through the aid of many inferior industries when the physician has paid for his teachers his books his diplomas and all the other items of his educational expenses he has no more paid for his talent than the capitalist pays for his house and land when he gives his employees their wages the man of talent has contributed to the production of himself of a useful instrument he has then a share in its possession but he is not its proprietor there exists side by side in him a free laborer and an accumulated social capital as a laborer he is charged with the use of an instrument with the superintendence of a machine namely his capacity as capital he is not his own master 
he uses himself not for his own benefit but for that of others even if talent did not find in its own excellence a reward for the sacrifices which it costs still would it be easier to find reasons for lowering its reward than for raising it above the common level every producer receives an education every laborer is a talent a capacity that is a piece of collective property but all talents are not equally costly it takes but a few teachers but a few years and but little study to make a farmer or a mechanic the generative effort and if i may venture to use such language the period of social gestation are proportional to the loftiness of the capacity but while the physician the poet the artist and the savant produce but little and that slowly the productions of the farmer are much less uncertain and do not require so long a time whatever be then the capacity of a man whether his capacity is once created it does not belong to him like the material fashioned by an industrious hand it had the power of becoming and society has given it being shall the vase say to the potter i am that i am and i owe you nothing the artist the savant and the poet find their just recompense in the permission that society gives them to devote themselves exclusively to science and to art so that in reality they do not labor for themselves but for society which creates them and requires them to do no other duty society can if need be do without prose and verse music and painting and the knowledge of the movements of the moon and stars but it cannot live a single day without food and shelter undoubtedly man does not live by bread alone he must also according to the gospel live by the word of god that is he must love the good and do it know and admire the beautiful and study the marvels of nature but in order to cultivate his mind he must first take care of his body the latter duty is as necessary as the former is noble if it is glorious to charm and instruct men it is honorable as well to feed them when then society faithful to the principle of the division of labor entrusts a work of art or a science to one of its members allowing him to abandon ordinary labor it owes him an indemnity for all which it prevents him from producing industrially but it owes him nothing more if he should demand more society should by refusing his services annihilate his pretensions forced then in order to live to devote himself to labor repugnant to his nature the man of genius would feel his weakness and would live the most distasteful of lives they tell of a celebrated singer who demanded of the empress of russia catherine the second twenty thousand roubles for his services that is more than i give my field marshals said catherine your majesty replied the other has only to make singers of her field marshals if france more powerful than catherine the second should say to mademoiselle rachel you must act for one hundred louis or else spin cotton to monsieur dupre you must sing for two thousand four hundred francs or else work in the vineyard do you think that the actress rachel and the singer dupre would abandon the stage if they did they would be the first to repent it mademoiselle rachel receives they say sixty thousand francs annually from the comedie francaise 
for a talent like hers it is a slight fee why not one hundred thousand francs two hundred thousand francs why not a civil list what meanness are we really guilty of chaffering with an artist like mademoiselle rachel it is said in reply that the managers of the theatre cannot give more without incurring a loss that they admit the superior talent of their young associate but that in fixing her salary they have been compelled to take account of the company's receipts and expenses into consideration also that is just but it only confirms what i have said namely that an artist's talent may be infinite but that its mercenary claims are necessarily limited on the one hand by its usefulness to the society which rewards it on the other by the resources of this society in other words that the demand of the seller is balanced by the right of the buyer mademoiselle rachel they say brings to the treasury of the théâtre francais more than sixty thousand francs i admit it but then i blame the theatre from whom does the théâtre francais take this money from some curious people who are perfectly free yes but the working men the lessees the tenants those who borrow by pawning their possessions from whom these curious people recover all that they pay to the theatre are they free and when the better part of their products are consumed by others at the play do you assure me that their families are not in want until the french people reflecting on the salaries paid to all artists savants and public functionaries have plainly expressed their wish and judgment as to the matter the salaries of mademoiselle rachel and all her fellow artists will be a compulsory tax extorted by violence to reward pride and support libertinism it is because we are neither free nor sufficiently enlightened that we submit to be cheated in our bargains and the laborer pays the duties levied by the prestige of power and the selfishness of talent upon the curiosity of the idle and that we are perpetually scandalized by these monstrous inequalities which are encouraged and applauded by public opinion the whole nation and the nation only pays its authors its savants its artists its officials whatever be the hands through which their salaries pass on what basis should it pay them on the basis of equality i have proved it by estimating the value of talent i shall confirm it in the following chapter by proving the impossibility of all social inequality what have we shown so far things so simple that really they seem silly that as the traveller does not appropriate the route which he traverses so the farmer does not appropriate the field which he sows that if nevertheless by reason of his industry a labourer may appropriate the material which he employs every employer of material becomes by the same title a proprietor that all capital whether material or mental being the result of collective labour is in consequence collective property that the strong have no right to encroach upon the labour of the weak nor the shrewd to take advantage of the credulity of the simple finally that no one can be forced to buy that which he does not want still less to pay for that which he has not bought and consequently that the exchangeable value of a product being measured neither by the opinion of the buyer nor that of the seller but by the amount of time and outlay which it has cost the property of each always remains the same 
are these not very simple truths well as simple as they appear to you reader you shall see yet others which surpass them in dullness and simplicity for our course is the reverse of that of the geometricians with them the further they advance the more difficult their problems become we on the contrary after having commenced with the most abstruse propositions shall end with the axioms but i must close this chapter with an exposition of one of those startling truths which never have been dreamed of by legists or economists that from the standpoint of justice labor destroys property this proposition is the logical result of the two preceding sections which we have just summed up the isolated man can supply but a very small portion of his wants all his power lies in association and in the intelligent combination of universal effort the division and cooperation of labor multiply the quantity and the variety of products the individuality of functions improves their equality there is not a man then but lives upon the products of several thousand different industries not a laborer but receives from society at large the things which he consumes and with these the power to reproduce who indeed would venture the assertion i produce by my own effort all that i consume i need the aid of no one else the farmer whom the early economists regarded as the only real producer the farmer housed furnished clothed fed and assisted by the mason the carpenter the tailor the miller the baker the butcher the grocer the blacksmith etc the farmer i say can he boast that he produces by his own unaided effort the various articles of consumption are given to each by all consequently the production of each involves the production of all one product cannot exist without another an isolated industry is an impossible thing what would be the harvest of the farmer if others did not manufacture for him barns wagons ploughs clothes etc where would be the savant without the publisher the printer without the typecaster and the machinist and these in their turn without a multitude of other industries let us not prolong this catalogue so easy to extend lest we be accused of uttering commonplaces all industries are united by mutual relations in a single group all productions do reciprocal service as means and end all varieties of talent are but a series of changes from the inferior to the superior now this undisputed and indisputable fact of the general participation in every species of product makes all individual productions common so that every product coming from the hands of the producer is mortgaged in advance by society the producer himself is entitled to only that portion of his product which is expressed by a fraction whose denominator is equal to the number of individuals of which society is composed it is true that in return this same producer has a share in all the products of others so that he has a claim upon all just as all have a claim upon him but is it not clear that this reciprocity of mortgages far from authorizing property destroys every possession the laborer is not even possessor of his product scarcely has he finished it when society claims it but it will be answered even if that is so even if the product does not belong to the producer 
still society gives each laborer an equivalent for his product and this equivalent this salary this reward this allowance becomes his property do you deny that this property is legitimate and if the laborer instead of consuming his entire wages chooses to economize who dare question his right to do so the laborer is not even proprietor of the price of his labor and cannot absolutely control its disposition let us not be blinded by a spurious justice that which is given the laborer in exchange for his product is not given him as a reward for past labor but to provide for and secure future labor we consume before we produce the laborer may say at the end of the day i have paid yesterday's expenses tomorrow i shall pay those of today and every moment of his life the member of society is in debt he dies with the debt unpaid how is it possible for him to accumulate they talk of economy it is the proprietor's hobby under a system of equality all economy which does not aim at subsequent reproduction or enjoyment is impossible why because the thing saved since it cannot be converted into capital has no object and is without a final cause this will be explained more fully in the next chapter to conclude the laborer in his relation to society is a debtor who of necessity dies insolvent the proprietor is an unfaithful guardian who denies the receipt of the deposit committed to his care and wishes to be paid for his guardianship down to the last day lest the principles just set forth may appear to certain readers too metaphysical i shall reproduce them in a more concrete form intelligible to the dullest brains and pregnant with the most important consequences hitherto i have considered property as a power of exclusion hereafter i shall examine it as a power of invasion end of section twelve chapter three part four